the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello, my visionary friends. Thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading esoteric and scientific experts, bringing evolutionary solutions to today's unique challenges. You, my treasured audience, are a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions. We'll address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy. This hour, we'll consider supporting children through COVID-19. No, I don't want to go to the doctor, my grandson wailed. But honey, you have strep throat. You need medicine to get well. You've been to the doctor before. Why are you so upset this time? His mother asked. They'll test me for COVID, and it'll be positive. Everyone will hate me, and they'll lock me at home forever. Where do kids come up with these things? Well, the truth is they're sensitive. All the adults around them are freaked out, and no one can agree on anything. Is COVID-19 a hoax or a grand conspiracy? Is it biological warfare and we're all doomed to die? Is it a scheme to vaccinate us all with tracking chips? No wonder the poor children are confused and frightened. We speak about returning to normal, but how normal can it be with a generation of children suffering from PTSD? How can we mitigate the trauma to our children during the pandemic? How can we reassure them when we ourselves are so unsure? With us this hour to explore the effect of COVID-19 on our children and how to support them through it is Lori Marshall. Lori is the author of Beating the Odds Now, 10 Steps to Meet the Standards and Still Love What You Do. Lori is a certified social studies and art teacher with 35 years experience in public, alternative, and private schools. She's a bully prevention, project-based learning, and arts integration therapist. 
a specialist, excuse me, mother of two sons and a grandmother. She's passionate about supporting parents and teachers in these unprecedented times. Her website, laurie-marshall.com. Laurie, behalf, on behalf of myself and all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. I am very happy to be here. And the story that you shared is deeply reflective of the kinds of self-talk and fears that children are, are experiencing now. Yeah, it's so confusing. I mean, even for adults, and they just kind of get it on the flyby. Nobody talks directly to them, it doesn't seem like. Poor right. things. Yeah. So would you mind giving us a little um, idea? What exactly is your educational background? I know you're a certified teacher. Yes, I studied history and education at Antioch College, which is a hands-on project-based college, which I loved. And I went on to get a master's degree in art and education at Beacon College, which is now the Union Institute, where you get to design your own program. And I spent two years making art with a wide variety of people, including youth in a mentally handicapped home, elders in rural Virginia, juvenile uh, kids who had had juvenile records. Um, I worked with museums and I just learned how art can be a community building experience because it allows you to reflect on your inner experience. Mm. And so what, you, go ahead. What, what, what age groups do you work with at this point? I'm working with three-year-olds to 95-year-olds at this point. So you don't leave anybody out of the equation, right? I don't. I don't. <laughs> what, what do you find is the most rewarding part of being a teacher? You know, teachers have the lowest suicide rate of any profession. And I believe it's because the time that you spend supporting learning with young people keeps uh, growing. And I have had students come back 30 years later showing me what they do with their kids that I did with them mm -hmm. and sharing that in my art room, there were no mistakes. There were just learning opportunities. And to see the people that I taught doing that with their children it makes me so gratified and happy. And basically, it's the love between people that is the most gratifying thing about teaching. What are the greatest challenges of being a teacher at this particular time? Being Not being able to be physically with your students is very, very challenging. We are herd animals. As mammals, we love to nestle up to each other and be in the same, in close proximity. So to be separated, is a, it is a certain kind of trauma. And it have you been teaching online? I'm sorry. Y yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have been. And wondering how isolated kids are and seeing that there are students who have lousy internet connection, have five kids in the home, have parents that have to leave and they're on the kids are on their own. It is really tough. And Teachers have to model that we're learners, and adults have to model that we're learners, and we're learning because this has never been done before. Everything is unprecedented, isn't it? What 
what do you think is the advantage? I mean, there's to every disadvantage, there's an advantage. What do you think is the advantage to having to adjust to teaching online and being distant from the from the children? My hope is that people will rethink education, <laughs> will rethink how important it is to pay attention to what the child is interested in, because right now we keep imposing these outside curriculums on the children. And as you said in your opening story, we don't listen to what the children are saying. And I believe every child comes in with a certain set of affinities and things that bring them joy that is makes them useful. And it's really important to expose them to many, many ideas and possibilities, which is what curriculums are supposed to do. We just forget the next most important step, which is how is this landing in the child? How can they apply it? What can they do to solve real problems? You know, it, it seems that we did kind of lose <laughs> lose track with education when it became all about the numbers rather than about mm -hmm. the individual gifts. Um, mm -hmm. How long have we been away from that, and how do you see us getting back to it? Wow. The question of how long we got away from it, I, it's, that's a great question. It's huge. I know the Industrial Revolution started our model of factory education where everybody learns the same thing and gets graded by the same test and that just doesn't work and the way that we can move forward is to keep asking our children what makes you feel joyful what makes you feel useful what problem do you want to solve and we need our children's genius right now to solve so many problems to solve climate change to solve the health epidemics that we're having to solve economic inequality and our children are dying to do real work so, but isn't that putting an awful lot on our kids? And I know we are. I mean, uh, no generation is being left with as many problems as the one upcoming. But isn't that putting an awful lot on them to um, expect them to come up with answers? That's a great observation. And I didn't mean to imply that they would be doing that alone. I believe we should treat all kids like graduate students, that they have an area of interest that they partner with experts and that they apply their knowledge with partners to come up with real new innovative solutions. So indeed, we need to not segregate the kids all the way. We need to work with them on our problems. You know, it, in indigenous times, it was the custom that they would observe the child, the entire tribe would observe the child, see where their interests and gifts lied, and then uh, apprentice them with the person that, that was their trade. That's and, gorgeous. You know, a beautiful way of doing it and very successful. However, now the numbers alone, doesn't it make it almost impossible? I don't think so. I think we can be very creative we can now there are small pods of learners popping up because the schools aren't functioning and they're interage and like one teacher is working with a group of 10 kids that's a really interesting model and you can use public school curriculum to fertilize your imagination but not to straightjacket the child's interest and you know i think we are enormously creative species and we can go ahead and 
come up with ways where small groups can nurture children well. Small intergenerational groups can nurture children well. We can do that. It kind of takes us back to that indigenous way of being, which was quite frankly healthier than what we're dancing with now. Absolutely. your, Your bio says you're an integration specialist. What is that exactly? So it says an arts integration specialist, and that means that whatever topic you study, you can express the knowledge that was learned creatively, and that will more deeply engage the kids. For instance, if you're studying math and make a graph, you can make that graph beautiful with colors, or you can act out that graph with blocks. Um, You can put it in a three-dimensional world. You can put it in music. Right now, education is competing with YouTube and Fortnite and Minecraft. And to just have people write on pencil and paper or type into the computer what they're learning is not going to compete with these highly engaging visual multimedia forms. So kids now know how to use the camera. on their phone, they know how to make videos, they wanna communicate to each other, they wanna connect. So expressing knowledge through music videos and dance and spoken word is uh, what I help teachers to do. So when when you start working with multimedia as a a teaching format, um, are you, I would assume, building in ways that they become very, very interactive? Because up until now, one of the problems with media is the kids just sit there in front of a TV set and drool. There's no interaction. And and, and it seems to me that we need to reignite that interaction piece. Um, How do you suggest doing that? Again, um, there's a fantastic educator named Angela Myers who asks a crucial question. What is breaking your heart? And when you ask kids what's breaking your heart, that's part of how they find their purpose. Human beings are meant to love mastery. They're meant to love purpose. They're meant to love connection. And um, when you keep asking your the kids, and you have to, of course, have a a trusting relationship for them to be honest about what's breaking their heart, then they can come up with ways of addressing and healing that heartbreak. And for an example, one of the examples that Angela um, gave in her book, The Everyday Genius, no, I'm not sure if the Genius Hour, I think it's called, um, the kids in one class, they were heartbroken by the fact that when their parents got divorced, uh, the dog had to go one place, just stay at one place. And so they came up with a business that, um, that helped people share their dogs in divorced families. Very creative. And again, working with... Um, a lot of what breaks the hearts of kids are breaking the hearts of adults. Absolutely. And We're going to have to pick up with what's breaking our heart on the other side of a commercial break. Thank but you. But it, it, it is time for that break. Laurie and I will return shortly, so don't you go away. Okay. You're listening to Mission Evolution, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Oh. 
Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Hello again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. We're dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. To all our faithful and thoughtful listeners, we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you. What do you think about the impact of the pandemic on our children? This in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled Hidden Killers, COVID-19, Inflammation and Diet. LD states, I was amazed how much of our health is dictated by the state of our gut. It makes me think twice about what I put into my mouth. Thanks, LD. Dr. Gundry has some wonderful information on how to strengthen our immune systems during COVID-19. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org, listen to the episode entitled Hidden Killers, COVID-19, Inflammation and Diet, and let us know what you think. Email me at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the very next show. With us this hour discussing supporting children through challenging times is Lori Marshall. Her website, lori-marshall.com. Lori, speaking of heartbreak, with COVID-19 riots, social unrest, and wildfires, we're clearly in unprecedented times. How do you as a teacher see it impacting our children? Because I work in the realm of art, the children have been generating some fascinating imagery one child made a picture of the earth and around the earth, instead of that traditional picture of everybody holding hands around the earth, it, there was COVID virus all around the earth. Another child made a drawing of a girl and a boy and in between was a great big COVID nasty looking virus cell and she wrote, COVID got in the way of their relationship. Mm-hmm. So... It is getting in the way of, of kids' relationships. Kids love to play together, and they can't do that. And it's up to us adults to hold the space that, that love and relationship is the most important thing and that they are loved and they can still love their friends and express their love in this strange time. And that even though we are in great uncertainty, that our faith in the process of life and the power of love is unswerving. Mm-hmm. We need to give that to our kids right now because they, they are worried in ways we can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, and it's just, 
it's, it's really heart, heartbreaking that you can't even see each other's face um, out in public. You know, I, I walk yeah. by somebody and I don't necessarily even recognize them. Yeah, I have to really yeah. focus on what color is their hair, what do their eyes look like, because we're used to smiling at each other. We can't do that anymore. And I would expect children who take their cues from adults and from people's expressions really feel uh, isolated by that. Yeah, I think so. And again, for millions of years before the Industrial Revolution, even before farming, we only knew about 130 people in our, or 170 people in our lives. And those people all sang the same songs and danced the same dance and ate the same food and wore the same beautiful clothes and told stories and cared for the children and cared for the elders. It was a very small, tight group that was a village. That's what the village does, shares food, stories, care. And we have, we have uh, broken that beautiful system through industrialization. And it's time, now time to return to that, not in the way that we have to be afraid of other tribes, but that we give each child an experience of songs and dances and food and a, a small network of people that just adore them and are always saying, oh, you're interested in bugs? Here's some plastic bugs, which is what's happening with my grandson. Um, so it's up to us to nurture the children very intensely and to make children a priority. If our country wanted to make children a priority, we would be spending billions and billions of dollars so that schools could have 10 children in a space safely, 10 or 15. And we aren't there now. And now here we are in the middle of COVID-19. You know, there's huge differences in opinion about COVID-19 among the adults to mask or not to mask, to open schools or to keep children home. How is this confusion impacting the children? Oh, it's, it's just tough. It's just very tough. And if we value the scientific method and evidence, which has great limits, but also gives important data, then it's important to listen to the science. I agree with you there. And, you know, should, should we be careful about what we see in front of our children, about our opinions um, regarding COVID-19 and, and all the other challenges we face? Do we, do we need to kind of censor what we're saying around them? I think we need to understand that they need inspiring stories and that when we and they need to have a picture of the behavior we want and why we want it and that's what stories can give so having the news on all the time is really tough on kids um it's really yes. tough on adults Yes, we yeah. have. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have to be very thoughtful about what we say in front of the children, and to understand that they need to know that it's going to be okay. And but it's hard. We need to acknowledge that it's hard. So stories of of people overcoming great hardship, and there's so many real stories of this, um, are very important for the children right now. Well, you know, if we again, if we go back to the indigenous ways, um, before the family structure and the society structure was broken 
in many ways. Storytelling was a huge um, part of education and um, of, of sharing of experience. And that's where adults and children alike really got their information. How can we reintroduce that in a healthy way? Because right now, storytelling has been taken over by, you know, going to movies or, you know, video games or this or that. And the stories that are being told are sometimes kind of dubious. They are. We, we have to, um, first of all, every parent is uh, an indigenous storyteller about their child. So when your child does something really crummy, when you go to bed at night, you can make up a story about Ralph who took all of the cookies and didn't leave any for anybody else. And then nobody wanted to play with Ralph. And then Ralph figured out that if he shared his cookie, people would like to play with him. You don't have to say, share the cookies, you know, you're being bad. You can just put it in a story and the kid will get it because our brains are hardwired to learn from story. For those millions of years that we were in that one tribe, we sat around the the fire at the end of the day to tell our stories and to give our uh, assessment about what is valuable in the tribe. And we can still do that. We can still make up the stories that our child needs to hear. Um, You know, know, we have... Every again, everything's un, unprecedented, and we have very, very, very adult problems um, that the children are immersed in right now. How can we tell if the information we're, that we're sharing with them is age appropriate? Because it seems like what they are able to do at their age is way different than what we were able to do at their age. It is, and we just have to keep listening to them. The only way we know the answer to that great question is to listen to them. And they'll, they'll let us know if it's appropriate or not. They'll say, that's too much. Or they'll say, what can I do about it? And they can do a lot about it. In my book, Beating the Odds Now, I tell a story of uh, that I saw on a nightline with Ted Koppel decades ago of a seventh grade teacher in Kentucky who asked her kids what they would like to research as a class. And one of the kids said, well, the coal company wants to cut off the top of Black Mountain. What's that going to do? And another kid said, most of our daddies work for the coal company. Maybe we shouldn't do that. The teacher said, I will support you in whatever you want to do. And the class decided to go ahead and research what the effects would be on the water, on the forest, on the economy, on the... um, wildlife of Black Mountain if the top was cut off. They did their research and they put it in an article that they published in a newspaper and then they went to the, um, they took it to the legislature of Kentucky and the top of Black Mountain was not cut off. And in fact, it was held as a land preserve. That's what a seventh grade class did 20 years ago in Kentucky. That's amazing. And particularly in Kentucky, you know. Right. Yeah, that's, that's just amazing. So how, how does the media, what, the coverage of what's going on, you talked about, you know, turning off the news and this and that, but they're, it's bleeding through. They're getting it. How is that impacting the children and how can we mitigate it? Again, we mitigate it by being creative, 
by being creative with our children, by allowing them to express what's going on in them creatively so that they are getting trained in emotional intelligence. And art is one of the fastest ways to train in emotional intelligence. Would you mind defining defining emotional intelligence? I think a lot of us have heard the term, but exactly how are you using it? I'm using it to in, to indicate a person's ability to understand what their body and their feelings are experiencing so and being able to articulate that so that they have the ability to choose how to respond. Because when we're unconscious of what our body is feeling and what our feelings are, we often act out of them instead of as uh, a, being aware of them and making a choice. And I had the good fortune to hear Admiral Thad Allen, who was the admiral who uh, cleaned up Hurricane Katrina a month after the um, it hit New Orleans. He spoke at a FEMA higher education symposium, and he said that the greatest intelligence that we need for the 21st century is emotional intelligence. The thing that sabotages us is when we feel threatened and we start acting out of our reptile brain and attacking back. And right now we have so much negative talk. We have so much threat coming at us that people are attacking back. Right. Everybody's getting thrown into the back brain. There's no logic there. There's no compassion there. There's yeah. no love. It's just fight or flight. Yes. And how, you know, this this entire situation we're in is really pushing people that direction. Right. Um, and then children are caught in the middle. How can we mirror for them how to step out of that back brain and into the front brain, which it sounds like what you're talking about is emotional intelligence. Exactly. All I can say is I've been working on this for 70 years and I still don't have it, but I get a lot of help. I get as much help as I can. One thing is that we have about like 0.4 seconds to interrupt our sense of fight or flight and taking a deep breath and trying to center your body is the best interruption that I've been able to find because it's hard and also understanding that when our emotions come up that we can say I'm feeling a, I'm feeling a lot and I need to step away until I can calm myself down so adults modeling that instead of just acting out the emotions is a great help for the children and they're, they're such beautiful little blank slates because I understand that wherever you spend most of your time, whether the front brain or the back brain, actually in, enhances or increases the power of that particular part of your brain. So children that are young and have even more neuroplasticity than we do can really benefit from learning these tools early on. Yes. Uh, do you, uh, we're just about out of time, but do you know of a good resource for that? In fact, we'll probably have to pick up on that on the other side. But do okay. you know of some resources for that? I do indeed. Fantastic. Well, on the other side of this commercial break, we'll look at resources on how to take advantage of children's neuroplasticity and give them the tools they need to deal with the challenges of today. It is time for another quick pause. Lori and I will return to our discussion shortly, so you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution. We're coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire Leading Edge information-packed past episode collection is available to listen or download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. Our special guest this hour is Lori Marshall. We're speaking about children's well-being during these challenging times. Her website, lori-marshall.com. Lori, we were just about to talk about what I think might be a major key during these times is neuroplasticity and how to tools to help children and adults for that matter, that would help a lot, uh, step out of the back brain of fight or flight and aggression and into the front brain where there's logic, love, compassion, spirituality, and all those wonderful things that we need more of. So what tools do you have to offer and where can people find them? One of the most important tools is your child's creativity and curiosity. They, they have the tool. And if you nurture that, your creativity and curiosity will be expanded too. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, a child shall lead them. Because Mm -hmm. their love, their curiosity, and their creativity is just bursting forth. So doing everything you can to protect that. And when you are creative, you make a decision and, and take action. And that process of making a decision and taking action is uses the prefrontal and neocortex. You can't do that when you're in flight or flight because then you're just attacking back when you feel attacked. So you don't have a choice. So every opportunity you have to turn feelings into play. Uh, Yesterday I took paper bags from Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and cut eyes in them, three of them. One was the mad bag, one is the happy bag, and one is the sad bag, and put them over and played with my three-year-old uh, grandson about where we I was mad at the fly in the house. I was sad when anybody got hurt. I was so happy to see him and put the bags, bags on. Um, so your sense of creativity Everybody, creativity is everyone's birthright. We are made by creator. Our earth is made by creator. We have creator in us. And when we create, creator flows through us. And our children are here to uh, remind us of that. So that is a very, uh, very powerful tool. Creativity is the fastest route to consciousness. Mm. You know, we tend to um, parent thinking that we have to have the answers. Uh, And children tend to ask a lot of questions. How about if we turn that around and we ask the children the questions, doesn't that put them in a more creative space? That is very wonderful. And, And not fake questions like, what color is that? But real questions and introducing the concepts of mystery and adventure very young. Because look at the mystery we're in and look at the adventure that we're in as a species. We're on the possible possibility of creating a world that's based on a regenerative agriculture and economy that is truly just where all races, all sexes, all life forms are treated with reverence. This is a huge adventure. We've never created a world like that. But if we don't, we won't be here. 
<laughs> so, so the children um, are naturally inquisitive. And if we can turn that inquisitiveness into, you know, towards without expecting them to come up with, you know, having taking too much responsibility for the answers. But, you know, here we are in this this pandemic. Here we are in this. Here we are in that. Some people say this. Some people say that. What do you think? Uh-huh. Does that help them feel like they have power and, and take them out of flight, fight or flight? Yes. And not only what do you think, but what what can we do about it? Let's see what we can do. There are, um, I think, 19 kids that have sued the United States government for denying them the possibility of a healthy future. It's going to the Supreme Court. There are kids that are inventing ways of cleaning uh, filthy water, of making solar um, tents, Tents for refugees, like a kid came up with this idea of a tent with a refugees that has solar panels and places to gather water that can be put up when there's disasters and we know there's going to be more. Just like nature is infinitely creative and made 500 different forms of orchids last year in Costa Rica, we can come up with an ecosystem of health for our children that invents ways to regenerate our damaged earth. Well, there seems to be a lot of prodigies uh, among oh, yeah. our children, particularly yes. now. Um, and and I, am I wrong in assuming that more so now than we've seen historically? What's causing that? I think it's the imperative of survival that the kids who are coming in now are extremely compassionate, extremely focused on developing what God gave them. They're not uh, playing by normal rules and they know they don't have time. I mean, our, our earth is in serious danger of ecological collapse and the kids that are born now have a sense of urgency and a sense of the importance of their gifts. So they came in with kind of like an evolutionary nature. I think so. And, it, you know, there's been talk of the crystal children and the indigo children for years and years and years and years. But now as they're starting to get older, um, I'm hearing more and more how these kids are absolutely exceptional. How can we support them in, in their exception, being exceptional, and at the same time give them the foundation they need from our, our uh, experience? I think through story is very, that's one of the ways that we can do it. And these exceptional talents, again, if you listen for the spark of every child, you'll see that there is genius. And I define genius as uniqueness plus action. So we all are unique. Most people don't take action. And so to foster that genius in everybody we have to let them know that their ideas matter that they matter that our collective impulse matters together do um it used to be a very unusual yet be in, in you know in a writing class to be encouraged to write your own stories i would assume that children writing their own stories is going to bring forth information that we don't have yet um, is there a way um, that we can encourage them outside of just writing class? When we tell stories, when we tell good stories. And the the idea of children writing their stories makes me think of a project that I had the honor to work on uh, with 
a young man named Deontay Webster who wrote a story when he was eight years old in his historical fiction assignment in third grade. And he wrote a book, uh, a story called The Flood of Kindness, inspired by Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And even though he had never been there, his mom uh, had gone to college in Louisiana and she had told him about Hurricane Katrina and he thought about what would be the worst thing that could happen to somebody in a hurricane. And, and for him, it was losing his best friend. So he wrote this story where the act of grieving, when, when he cries, the tears hit the ground and a rose, a magical rose springs up that brings kindness back to New Orleans, which had been uh, almost a war breaking out. And Deontay wrote this story as an eight-year-old and he and I worked for six years to uh, illustrate it and to shape it and to publish it into a book and I did that because the story was so powerful and it's so needed for children to understand these huge historical events they can be dealt with through grieving which comes out of love and through community building and children they uh, just listen to them well it's, you know it seems like storytelling it can be used to affirm the values of your family or school uh -huh. but if we're going to use storytelling to affirm values isn't it time we spent some time re-examining those values during mm. these times of upheaval beautiful thought and again for me the indigenous people of our planet have values that resonate with me over and over again, that we value all living beings, that we value the rocks and the sky and the air and the water, and that we value each life as sacred. And that means that we don't kill each other, we don't pollute each other, we praise each other but that's your story and those are yeah. your values how can we encourage children to re-examine their story and their values because they're coming out of all sorts of different families and all sorts of different stories with all sorts of different values some are more supportive at this time than others yeah that's a great question that makes me think of how nature works which is nature always has diversity in its ecosystems and we need diverse stories there are many ways that love and kindness and uh, uh, authenticity and creativity and fighting for what you believe in. There are many different stories, uh, endless stories of, of how that can happen. So... Well, one of the things that I've definitely noted, and you know, um, I think it's getting pretty blatantly obvious, is that even our stories and our belief systems are becoming so polarized that there, there is no middle ground. How can we, um, I don't want to say combat that because that puts us in a polarized stance, but how can we start to counterbalance the polarized stories and the polarized beliefs so that there's room for uh, expansion? Guilda, I have to tell you, you ask great questions. I love them. I think the most important way to do that is to keep asking the 
people who disagree with us, what is it that you do care about the most? Let's just hear what you care about the most and also what your pain is. Well, you mean listen? Yeah. Isn't that a beautiful concept? Yes. Yeah. The amazing author Paul K. Chappelle, who was a former army captain um, and is now using what he learned in the army to wage peace, he says that aggression is a distress response. We see a lot of aggression right now, and there's a lot of distress. So making space for the distress to be expressed is important. It's not easy. It's uncomfortable. It's hugely important because part of the distress that's being expressed right now is historic rather than clear and present. And Mm -hmm. we've never expressed it before. Ergo, we've got this nice backlog. And I think that's causing more problems um, than anything else at this point. And it can, our country can't heal until we do uh, experience the pain that has happened. We just, you just can't heal pain if you pretend it's not there. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. And, and yet we've, we've been taught and um, inadvertently taught our children the stiff upper lip, you know, just get over it already. Pull up your, pull up your boots and let's go. Um, and, I, and I think that even our, our young children have been indoctrinated into ignoring their feelings. Exactly. Uh, you were asking about resources. There's a, a book I would like to recommend. It's called Con- Conversational Intelligence by Judith Glasser. And she was in the corporate world and came to understand the neurobiology of conversation and the ways that we trigger each other's reptile brains, the back brain, as you call it. And I found that book really helpful. One of the things she describes is three different ways of communicating. Level one is telling somebody what to do, which we do to our kids all the time. We're going to... We're going to have to pick up on the three ways of communicating on the other side of yet another commercial break. Uh, Laurie and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion on how to stay in the front brain. Don't leave us now. This is Mission Evolution on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or guest that you think would be of interest, email us, info at missionevolution.org. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with Lori Marshall. Her website, lori-marshall.com. Dash and Marshall. I'm stumbling over those today. Uh, Laurie, we were just getting into um, a book that you recommended, and if you wouldn't mind uh, speaking the name of the book again, and then we're talking about ways of, of, you know, staying into the front brain and being in logic and compassion rather than going into fight or flight. The book is called Conversational Intelligence by Judith Glasser. She describes three levels of conversation that I find really helpful to be aware of which one I'm in. Level one is you tell someone what to do. 
Level two is you advocate for your position. And level three is you explore, discover, and share. And level one is what we do to kids a lot and what you what happens in the army. And when everyone's agreed on that, that that's the game, you do not get your reptile brain triggered. But if you don't agree on it ahead of time, you do. Same with advocating for your position. If you have come to a meeting and the title, the, the agenda of the meeting is for everybody to share their positions, then it doesn't trigger people's reptile brains. But if you're having a fight with your husband and you start advocating for your position, uh, that triggers each other's reptile brains. The explore, discover, and share form of conversation is when you come into the conversation not judging the other person as wrong but trying to, again, understand what they value and where their pain is. And I'd love for all schools to be dedicated to level three conversations, and I'd love for all political campaigns to be <laughs> uh, level three conversations. And um, it's a, and, and uh, Judith describes all the neurobiology that, of that, so... It's very it sounds helpful. fascinating and very helpful. <laughs> yes. Can, can you elaborate on the tools of creativity, compassion, and collaboration that teachers and parents can use to help children overcome the anxiety that's being provoked by coronavirus at this time? And, and all the other challenges. Yes, yes. So, again, if we keep focusing on those three things, we won't be feeling so helpless. When you are creatively expressing what's going on inside of you, that decreases helplessness. When you understand that you're not the only one that's going through hard stuff, that decreases helplessness. And then when you can work together with other people to create something, that decreases helplessness. So it's very practical. Well, you know, during our sound check yesterday, you shared a story about an eight-year-old girl that just gave me goosebumps. Would you mind telling our listeners about your conversation with her and how it impacted your life? Yes, I'd love to. In 1999, I was an artist-in-residence at Hillsborough Elementary School in Virginia, and I made a painting with the kindergarten through fifth graders and when we were all done eight-year-old Meredith Miller said I wish the whole world could see our painting and then the whole world would be happy and then she said what if the whole world made a painting together and that made me long for humanity to be creative together and that changed my life and I thought well how in the world could the whole world make a painting together the whole world can't make a painting together and I went to my uh, teaching job at uh, Rappahannock County High School art class and one of the students showed me a picture of a world that was divided into hundreds of little squares um, and I thought wow we could like Everybody can make a little piece. And then somebody handed me this book called The Singing Tree by Kate Sarity. And that's a story of her father in World War I, when one night he and his fellow soldiers were crawling all night long on their bellies, and they couldn't escape the Russian soldiers, and they were terrified. And everything had been destroyed by the war. There was not one living thing left. 
When the dawn came, they looked up at a hill and there was one tree who had survived. And in that tree were hundreds of birds who aren't normally together singing a song that had never been heard before. And I thought, our earth is like the singing tree of the galaxy. There's no life around us. It's We're rare and precious and we can choose to destroy our beautiful earth and each other or we can create beauty that's never been seen before. So I began to make the Singing Tree Project, which is a collaborative mural project where each mural envisions success to a community challenge or healing to a community heartbreak. So Meredith Miller, at the age of eight, changed the direction of my life. And when I say it's important to listen to children, I have concrete experience. You know and of now, what you speak. Yes, and yes. now there, there are 87 murals made by 20,000 people from uh, f- about 52 countries, and it's still growing. That's, that's a fantastic story. I just, I just love that. So thank you for sharing it. So how do you see um, artistic expression and peace-building murals supporting the children worldwide during these challenges that we're facing? Creatively and with a lot of energy. Uh, I've made a, one singing tree mural since it's been COVID, and we collectively designed it. Everybody made their own image and then took a photograph of it and sent it to me and I put all the images together. Everybody made drawings of leaves and birds and they took photographs of it and sent it to me and I printed it and put it together. Um, it's It can be done. And, and maybe we won't make great big murals for a while. Maybe we'll make books or other other forms. Who knows? But... I know that this experience of making a shared image of success is very important to building trust, and trust is what is needed in these fragile times. Oh, for sure. Um, What are the essential 21st century survival skills that our children are going to need here? Emotional intelligence, first of all, to not lose their bodies and to not lose their feelings and to understand that their feelings are data They're not the truth, but they're giving them information about something that's important. They're going to need critical thinking to understand that we just can't believe our assumptions. We can't believe the first thing that comes to mind. And again, I've been working on this for 70 years, and I still believe the first thing that comes into my head. Um, And uh, the ability to know that they are creative problem solvers to know that they are connected to and to be able to connect and to be to be as creative as they were born with you know we have to preserve the creativity wonder and curiosity that they come in with that's our Boy, job we, sure, we need it right now don't we Yes. We there's need those no, new answers that we don't have. <laughs> yes. There's no answer in the textbook for COVID. There's mm-hmm. no answer in the textbook for the um, pen, the drug opioid crisis. There's no answer in the textbook for ecosystems collapsing. You know, we, we have to invent this together. We need the children. We need the expertise of the elders. We need the people in between that are caring for the children and the elders. We need to be uh, have a collective intelligence like we've never had before. 
What evolutionary opportunities are being presented to the children of today due to all these challenges? Oh, what a beautiful question. I just love your questions. <laughs> it's you. been so much fun to talk with you. Um, the evolutionary opportunity is to be like nature, to stay connected to nature, to be regenerative like nature, and to not have waste because all of waste in nature is somebody else's food. Um, to understand that nature works with diversity. There's never a monocrop in nature. There's always diverse animals and plants that play. Everyone has an essential role to play, and that's true for all the children. They each have an essential role to play in making a world that works for all and a world where we model nature instead of destroy nature. That's our evolutionary opportunity. Wouldn't that be the key? I, I, I'm a large believer in, you know, nature knows what she's doing. Is when we got away from her that we got into trouble. Absolutely. <laughs> Where can people find your art and learn more about the trainings you offer? You can go to singingtreeproject.org and see the 87 murals that have been made. And the... Um, I also have a nonprofit called Unity Through Creativity Foundation, whose website is unitythroughcreativity.org. And there's information there about um, the Singing Tree Facilitator Certification and other classes that I offer. Fantastic. Well, I can't thank you enough for the wonderful service you're providing. You know, it's a, it's a very different world out there than when we were children. How are the children of today better equipped to face the current challenges than we were? Well, they were born for these times is all I can say. And they're, they're learning to use technology, which can be very destructive, but it also can be extremely connecting and helpful. Um, we can solve problems together using technology. And um, they're coming in with a lot of psychic abilities where they uh, can hear what's going on with animals and with adults <laughs> that is not being spoken in words. Um, they are coming in with very clear understandings of they don't want to waste their time with things that are, <coughs> excuse me, um, peripheral you know we have to make give really good explanations with why they have to learn things if they don't see a, an application I love the fact that you brought up that they're so sensitive and so um, aware of what's going on around them. And isn't that a lesson for us as adults to be more mindful of our emotional realms and mm -hmm. our management of, of, of what we're putting out there? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very exciting time. Young people are taking the lead in so many ways. And I also want to honor what you were saying, that it's not all on them. You know, all of us, especially the older generation, we have to give or I want to give everything I can in the short time I have remaining uh, so that the seven generations can thrive. And I just I hope all of us do that. Well, you know, when, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I, I personally believe that between the children that we have, the elders that we need to start listening to, we do have the tools. We just need to find them. We do have the tools. Um, 
In closing, we have a little bit of time left. What is your vision for the children's future? Oh, what a great question. My vision is that they will keep experiencing the joy of learning that they had when they first took their step and when they first learned to talk, that the joy in learning what is deeply fascinating to them will help them with the perseverance they need and to cope with the frustrations and the setbacks and that every child's gifts will blossom and grow and be able to be given to the world. Wow. That would make us very, very rich indeed. That would make us very rich. Well, unfortunately, Lori, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. It was my joy, and I look forward to further conversation. (laughs) Our guest this hour has been certified social studies and art teacher, Lori Marshall. Lori is the author of Beating the Odds Now, 10 Steps to Meet the Standards and Still Love What You Do. Her website, where you can learn all about her peace-building murals and trainings, um, is singingtreeproject.org. Remember, our entire... Information Pact past episode collection is available for listen or download free of charge. Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with yours truly, Gwilda Wiecka, on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Join us next time as the mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our evolving world. Thank you.